0: Free Will Baptist. We believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. This means is we believe Jesus has built His church in such a way that every disciple of Jesus is a priest before God. The priesthood of the believer means every disciple of Jesus is equal under God. Galatians three twenty eight. It means that every disciple of Jesus has direct access to God through Jesus. Hebrews seven twenty five through twenty eight. It means. Every disciple of Jesus can go to God directly for forgiveness of his sins. No, no human mediator is needed to seek forgiveness. We have found one mediator, and his name is Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And every disciple of Jesus is free and responsible to study God's Word on their own, Second Peter 1.20-21. 20 the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, it brings blessings and responsibilities. The blessing or every disciple of Jesus is equal before God and has equal access to God. But Billy Graham didn't have a special connection to God the rest of us cannot have. But if Billy Graham had a better relationship with Jesus than we do, it's simply because he stewarded his life better and not because he had something we can't have. That's the blessing. The responsibility is that we are all ministers. Under the old covenant, there were ministers and spectators. The ministers were the priests and the Levites, and the spectators was basically everyone else. Under the new covenant, we are all ministers, we are all priests. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. Now, to be sure, we minister in different ways, befitting the way God has wired us and the way God has gifted us but we are all meant to be ministers for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in ministry every bit as much as I am. Your ministry is different than mine, but you are no less a minister than I am. The best way to understand ministry is to understand ministry as serving Jesus by serving others. That's essentially all ministry is. We serve Jesus by serving others. But ministry requires preparation. Today we're going to see how, some ways, Jesus prepares us for ministry. If you haven't already, open your Bible to Mark 9, verse 30 is where we're going to start. That should be on page 770 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Mark 9 and 30. It says, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it, for... He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. They didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve to them, and he said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all. And servant of all title of the message this morning is preparing for ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we we love you and we are thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to gather freedom. We have, Lord, the the ability to to study your word, to worship you according to the dictates of your word and according to our conscience, Lord, what a blessing we have, what freedoms we have, Lord. Help us never to take this for granted. Father, we come today with a desire to meet with You, a desire for Your Holy Spirit to come and take the Word and make it living and active in our lives. Lord, we, we aren't here today to check a box. We aren't here today because it's Sunday and that's what we do. Lord, we have come and surrendered ourselves to this time and surrendering to You to work in our lives and prepare us to be Your ministers who would go out into a lost and a dying world and we would serve Jesus by serving others. We would take the spiritual gifts You've given us and we would employ them serving others in the name of jesus the power of holy spirit for your glory so begin to work in us today and prepare us father begin to chip away anything in our lives that hinders us from being ministers who would do your will in a lost and a dying world let your holy spirit come and Father, let him cause us to be focused let him give us liberty liberty for me to preach the word liberty for us to hear the word liberty to respond to the word to put it into practice in our lives We pray, Father, that you would work and do mighty things in our midst, that you would save the lost, that you would restore the prodigal. We pray that you would bind up broken hearts, that you would set captives free, that you would reconcile ruptured relationships, you would raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. Father, just generally work in all of our lives. Let us know that you're here and you're at work in our midst. Be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So verse 30 there the disciples have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They've come down after the casting the demon out of the boy. And they began to move through Galilee. But notice, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. He was trying to, to stay alone. And the reason is told us in verse 31. For He was teaching His disciples and telling them. So what Jesus wanted was to get the disciples alone and to train them. For ministry. He had something he wanted to do in them and through them and for them to prepare them for the ministry to come. What Jesus did then is what Jesus does now. Jesus works in us and through us and for us to prepare us for ministry. Jesus works in us and through us and for us to prepare us for ministry. Now, what must we do to be prepared for ministry? We see three Three things in this passage. First is we must embrace the greatest message. So Jesus is getting them alone. He's beginning to teach them. But notice what he's teaching them in verse 31. The son of man will be handed over to men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus wants to teach them the greatest message. The greatest message is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the greatest message the world has ever known. The great the gospel is the greatest and most important message for anyone to hear, understand and embrace. Now, notice that the gospel is clearly defined in this passage. It is the the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand this if we want to understand and embrace the gospel. We must understand the death of Jesus if we're going to understand and embrace the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross, it wasn't the death of a martyr, right? It wasn't poor, pitiful Jesus. He did good things and he taught great things, but the people rejected him and so he died. Poor Jesus. It's not that. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't because he made the wrong people angry. It wasn't that. Jesus' death on the cross, it was the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, the idea of substitution is critical. critical to our understanding the gospel, to understanding the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The idea of substitutional sacrifice is a universal theme in God's Word. Think through it for a second. When Adam and Eve sinned, they covered their sin with leaves. Was that sufficient? It wasn't. God killed an animal and used the animal skin to cover them. A substitutionary sacrifice was required to cover their sins. Well, that set the tone for the entire Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when someone sinned, they had to take an animal to the priest to be offered as a sacrifice for their sin. The animal was taken. It was put on an altar. Its throat was then slit and its blood drained into a bowl. It was gutted and its entrails were taken away. The carcass was then burned by fire. Now this, these actions taught the people three truths. It taught them their sin was serious. The killing, the gutting, the burning of the animal was a graphic demonstration of the seriousness of sin. Sin wasn't a minor thing. Sin wasn't a trivial thing. Sin wasn't something to be trifled with. Sin wasn't okay. Sin was destructive. Secondly, it taught them sin had consequences. The animal died because of sin. But the animal didn't die because of just some general idea of sin. Or it didn't die because of some sin out there somewhere. If I were a Jewish man at this time that took the animal to the priest, I would watch what happened to the animal. And I would watch it being killed and and gutted and burned. And I would know that was my fault. That animal died because of what I had done. My sin Killed that animal. And thirdly, it taught them sin required a sacrifice. The act of killing, gutting, and burning an animal wasn't once and done. It was done repeatedly. An animal had to die every time they sinned. This was the only way they could have their sins taken away. They couldn't just turn over a new leaf after they sinned. And it was good if they did, but something still had to die they couldn't make personal moral reforms. It was good if they did. But something still had to die. They couldn't just be more religious. Maybe it was good if they did. But something still had to die. Nothing they do could make up for their sin. Something had to die because of their personal sin. Now while this act was repeatedly performed. There was a problem. And that was. The sacrifices never really paid the penalty for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that an animal cannot pay the sin debt that a human earns. What the repeated sacrifices did was remind them of their sin. Remind them of its consequences. And pointed to the fact that a better sacrifice was needed to pay the debt their sin had earned. And there was a better sacrifice and his name is Jesus. Jesus came to be the one perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for all of our sins. This is why John the Baptist testified in John 1.29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus died and He cried out, It is finished. And that moment when it was finished, He had paid our debt. Jesus fulfilled through His death what the Old Testament sacrifices symbolized. And just as the Old Testament sacrifice has taught three things, the sacrifice of Jesus teaches us three things as well. Our sin is serious. Everything Jesus endured on the cross graphically demonstrates the seriousness of our sin. Sin is not a minor thing. Sin is not a trivial thing. Sin is not something to be trifled with. Sin is not okay. Sin is destructive. Not only is sin serious, but our sin has consequences. Jesus died because of sin. But He didn't die because of just some general idea of sin. And He didn't just die for sin out there somewhere. When we look at the cross and we see what Jesus endured on the cross, we should know it was our fault. My sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. And then finally, the sacrifice of Jesus tells us that the sacrifice has been made for our sin. Jesus' death on the cross is good for all times. It is just as effective today as it was on the day He died. Jesus' death on the cross will not be repeated. It was done once for all time. His death on the cross will never lose its power. It is the only sacrifice God will ever ask for payment for our sins, but it's also the only sacrifice God will ever accept as the payment for our sins. Now this is good news, but there are implications with the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that some may see as not so good news. Since Jesus' death is the only sacrifice God will accept for our sins, then, then we can't just turn over a new leaf. Maybe good if we do, but we must embrace Jesus. We can't just make moral reforms. Maybe it would be good if we did. But we still must embrace Jesus. We can't just try harder. We must embrace Jesus. We can't be more religious. We must embrace Jesus. Then after his death, Jesus did something amazing. He rose from the dead. He, he literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. His resurrection is Critical to our understanding of the gospel because if Jesus rose from the dead, then all the other testimonies about him are true. He is who he says he is, and he can do what he said he can do. Now, everything starts here. Everything in the Christian life begins with the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It begins by embracing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But Embracing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus it isn't something that's one and done. It's something we must do on a daily basis, if not a moment by moment basis. Because every day our world tempts us to trust in other things. Every day our world tries to, to convince us to trust in something else for our salvation. To trust in something else for our righteousness. To trust in something else in our right standing with God. There will always be a temptation to trust in in maybe ourselves. Or to trust in our morality. Or to trust in the way we vote. Or to trust in our good deeds. Or to trust in our nationality. Or to trust in our religious activity. Or to trust in, in our something. And each time. We're tempted to trust in something other than the life, death, and resurrection. We must reject that temptation. And we must choose to renew our trust in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And only in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There is no hope apart from the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So reminding us to embrace the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus is a part of the way Jesus works in us, through us, and for us to prepare us for the gospel. So we must embrace the greatest message, but then we must beware, or be aware, or beware of the greatest deceiver. Now notice in verse 32, they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Now, obviously, they understood the actual words Jesus spoke. What they did not understand were the meaning of the words. They didn't understand what was going to happen to Jesus when they arrived in Jerusalem. They certainly didn't understand why it would happen. Now, given the fact this isn't the first time Jesus has talked to them about His coming death, why didn't they understand it? Why were they unable to grasp what Jesus was saying? While there could be many reasons, I think verse 33 gives us the main reason. Verse 34, verse 33, they were discussing something. Verse 34, Jesus asked them what they were discussing. They kept silent for on the way. They had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So so picture the scene. Jesus talks to them about when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over. They're going to kill him. And then he's going to rise from the dead. And they're like, "Uh, well, okay. And then as soon as they move on, They began to argue over who is better than who, who is the greatest. They couldn't wrap their mind around what Jesus was saying about his death because their pride was in the way. In their pride, they were too busy thinking about which one of them was better than the other one. They couldn't understand what Jesus was saying because their pride was a a block. It was a spiritual block keeping them from embracing the greatest message. Now, our culture often celebrates pride and treats pride as a virtue and not a vice. But God's Word does not have this perspective. God's Word paints pride in the worst possible terms. It has been said that Pride is the mother of all sins, and it is pregnant with all the rest. The old saying is that it was through pride that an angel became the devil. Satan's rebellion against God was motivated by his pride. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. He wanted to be like God, and he wanted to be worshipped as God. You may be wondering, how does Satan's pride-filled rebellion against God have to do with humans? Not grasping the message of the cross. Well, pride is what keeps people from understanding the message of the cross. Pride pushes people away from God. Think about when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. One of the ways he tempted them was to use their pride against them. Right? He, he convinced them God was keeping them from something good. And, and he told them if he, he said, God knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. Knowing good from evil. He appealed to their pride. To convince them to rebel against God. Human pride. Is the primary motivator. Behind people rejecting the gospel. God's word says. That indeed the Jews seek signs. But the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles foolishness. The Jews Stumbled over the cross and the Greeks dismissed it as foolish. These two attitudes are still common in our culture today. Among those who reject the cross. Some hear the message of the cross. And they stumble over it because they find it offensive. They're offended at several truths the gospel or the cross reveals. The truth the cross reveals is that their sin are as serious or as wrong as everyone else's. And if there's one thing our culture believes, it's that we're all special. And what we do is okay, even if it's wrong for someone else. That They're offended at the idea of being ultimately accountable to God. We, as humans, we, we want to be self-autonomous. We're, we're not accountable to anyone. Ain't nobody going to tell me what I can and can't do. Not even God. They're offended that God will hold them to the same standard that He will hold everyone else to. Again, our our culture, we are convinced we're special. And we should not be held to the same standard everyone else is. They're offended at the idea that they're guilty in the eyes of God. How I watched a comedian talk about that he just basically, how dare God judge him? Now, it was a vulgar, vile comedy routine, but it's very common among those who reject the cross. They're offended because... They're condemned by their sin. Sure, maybe they're not perfect, but to be condemned, that's too far. My sin is not that serious. They're offended because they cannot save themselves from the wrath to come. Again, as a culture, we are good enough. By golly, we can do it on our own to say that I can't. No, they're offended by the fact they must embrace Jesus to be saved from the wrath to come. It's bad enough to say they can't save themselves, but there's only the one way. No. They're offended. The horror of the cross demonstrates the severity of their sins. There is no way my sins are that bad. Now, why do these truths offend them? Because the message of the cross assaults their pride and offends their pride. And so they stumble over it. Their pride will not allow them to re- receive those truths it offends them. But others hear the message of the cross and they conclude it's foolishness. The truth that God, if there is a God, would take on human flesh, die on the cross for the sins of humanity and come back to life three days later. It's nonsense. They wonder how on earth any rational human being could believe such fairy tales. They can't imagine that, that God, if there is a God, would, would care about your personal morality. And would hold you accountable if you don't hold to an outdated, old-fashioned, puritanical moral code. In their mind, if there was a God, He would be so far removed from humanity, He would not care how they live so long as they did not hurt anyone else. And so they determine it would be foolish to believe anything else. They conclude the message of the cross to be foolish because their pride demands they be able to touch, taste, see or smell something before they believe it. Their pride demands everything conform to their human-centered wisdom. Their pride demands anything that doesn't conform to their human-centered wisdom, such as the message of the cross, be rejected as foolish. Their pride is the motivator behind their rejection. So while pride is the mother of all sins and is pregnant with all the rest, pride is also the mother of all rejections of Jesus and it is pregnant with all the rest. As disciples of Jesus, we must be aware and beware of this greatest deceiver as much as anyone else. Nearly everything in this world that wants to influence us appeals to our pride. Advertisers appeal to our pride, convincing us we deserve what they're selling. Political campaigns appeal to our pride by convincing us our team is better than the other team. False religions and spiritual expressions appeal to our pride because they tell us we know things no one else knows. Satan seeks to influence us by appealing to our pride because he knows deep down. We all want to think we're better than others. We're prettier. We're smarter. We care more. We live better. We do more. We deserve more. We fill in the blank. Not only does Satan appeal to our pride because deep down we all want to think we're better than others. But he also does it because he knows every step toward pride is a step away from the cross. Every step toward pride is a step away from Jesus. And so reminding us to be aware and beware the greatest deceiver, our own pride. It's part of the way Jesus works in us and through us and for us to prepare us for ministry. So we must embrace the greatest message. We must beware the greatest deceiver. And then finally, we must follow the greatest example. So Jesus and the disciples... Walked from Galilee to Capernaum. And as they walked, the disciples got into a discussion. Verse 33, Jesus asked them what they had been discussing. Now, I like verse 34. They kept silent. Seems that they were ashamed to tell him about what they had been arguing about. Which, what they had been arguing about was, who's the greatest? To me, it makes sense that they would be ashamed. I mean, a couple of kindergartners arguing about who's the greatest is one thing. Almost kind of cute but I can't imagine much being more lame than a couple of adult men sitting around arguing over who is better than the other. And this is especially since Jesus had just spent time telling them about His death and His resurrection. I mean, their their response to the message of the cross was, interesting, Jesus, by the way, Peter, I'm better than you. And they began to argue about it. Talk about missing the point. Now, Jesus knows what they've been arguing about. He he calls them about on it. And he tells them in verse 35. He told the twelve, sit down to him. And he said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, that's contrary to what our world teaches, right? I mean, that's certainly not forefront of how the world tells us to live. Be last of all, be servant of all. Now, the disciples were a lot like us. And so... Challenging and deep truths often didn't sink in on the first hearing. Turn to to Mark 10, verse 32. We see a similar issue comes up, showing that they didn't sink in right there. Mark 10 and 32 says, Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to Him, saying, Behold, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise from the dead. Now that's a really a, a, a longer explanation of what's going to happen. Now you'd think that their response would be, what do we do? How do we live? What's going on? But notice the response in verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do a favor for us. And he said, what do you want me to do? Grant, we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in glory. So the context is, is very similar. Jesus has talked about his life and his death and his resurrection. And immediately their response is to go to Jesus and be like, that was interesting. Hey, we got a favor to ask you. And here's what we want. We want to sit in the place of prominence, right? Because in, in Jewish culture and probably many other cultures at the time, the people sat at, at kind of a square-ish, rectangular table. And the head of the table was where the most important person sat. The right hand was the next most important. The left hand was the next most important. And it just sort of went down there. And so what they said is, Jesus, we get you at the head of the table. We want to be one here and one there. I mean, whatever, you're going to die, okay. But can you just be sure that we get to sit in these places of prominence? Now, in verse 41, the others hear it. And they began to be indignant with James and John. And we would like to say they were indignant because their humility prompted them to have this sort of righteous indignation that they would ask such a thing after Jesus had told them that he was about to die. But then we remember chapter 9. And the ten who were indignant are the same ten who were arguing about it before. What is more likely is they were angry because they didn't think to ask the question first. And Jesus explains again that things in the kingdom aren't the same. Verse 42, calling them to himself, he said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and people in high position exercise authority, but it's not to be that way among you. Whoever wants to be prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever wants to be first shall be slave of all. Again, that same idea of being a servant of all. But then he gives the great example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus set the greatest example. Jesus set the greatest example by coming and serving others. How did he serve others? By giving his life as a ransom for us. We will never go wrong by following Jesus' example of sacrifice. We will never go wrong by following Jesus' example of service. We will never go wrong by following Jesus' example of selflessness. But we have to notice the context of both stories. His calling them to a life of servanthood, a life of selflessness, always comes after His teaching about the cross. Jesus talked about sacrifice, his sacrifice. And then he called on his disciples to follow his example. Everything we do as disciples of Jesus is built on the foundation of what Jesus has already done for us. We serve others because on the cross Jesus served us. We deny ourselves and we take up our cross to follow Jesus because Jesus denied himself and he took up his cross for us. We give our lives as a living sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed his life for us. We love people and we generously do what we can to help them because Jesus loved us. And he generously gave up his life for us. First John three, sixteen through eighteen. We give sacrificially to help others, because Jesus sacrificially gave his life for us. Second Corinthians eight nine. We live a life crucified with Christ because Christ was crucified for us. Galatians two twenty. We strive to live holy lives. Because Jesus sacrificially gave His life to pay the penalty for our sins, 1 Corinthians 6:19 and 20. Everything we do as disciples of Jesus is built on the foundation of what Christ has already done for us. Everything. Everything always comes back to Jesus and what He has done for us on the cross. We cannot faithfully serve Jesus apart from serving Him through the cross. We cannot even know Jesus except coming to Him through the cross. And then once we come to Jesus through the cross, a natural response is we begin to follow His example. And following the example of Jesus leads us to serve Jesus by serving others. We begin to sacrificially serve others because Jesus has sacrificially served us. Listen, there is no such thing as selfish, self-centered, following Jesus and his example. This is why there is no way to this is why there is no way to faithfully follow Jesus apart from the cross. The cross murders our pride and the cross murders our self-centeredness and it enables us to follow the example of Jesus. So reminding us to follow his example is part of the way Jesus works in us and through us and for us to prepare us for ministry. So, we come to the end of the message, I want to offer, I guess, two invitations. First is for those who are ready to serve Jesus. You're ready to give your life to serve Jesus by serving others. And I want you to come to the altar and I want you to surrender your life to Jesus. And I want you to ask Him to work in you and through you and for you in whatever way He needs to prepare you for ministering to others in His name through Holy Spirit's power for Father's glory. But I also want us to know that Jesus not only prepares us for ministry... But Jesus ministers to us. We can't merely come to a passage like this and see actions we must take. We must also look at this and see our Savior that we can go to for help. To see Jesus who is willing and able to save us. To see Jesus who is willing and able to deliver us from whatever is enslaving us. To see Jesus. Who can hear and answer our prayers. To see Jesus who is willing and able to pour out His Spirit upon us. To see Jesus who is able to, willing and able to heal us. To see Jesus who is willing and able to bind up our broken hearts. To see Jesus who is willing and able to lead us along the best pathway for our lives. To see Jesus who teaches us how to be like Him. Jesus is willing and able to do these things because Jesus compassionately cares for us. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen as Jesus has loved us with an everlasting love. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen in the cross as he laid down his life on our behalf. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen as he invites us to come to him and to cast all of our cares upon him. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen as He invites us to the throne of grace where we're promised to find mercy and grace to help us in a time of need. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen as He invites us to come to Him to lay our burdens down and to find rest for our souls. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen as He actively works to draw us to Himself. That there's a song by a group called City of Lot. And it's got, I don't know, three verses, but the first verse is like Jesus said, if I am dry, I can go to Him. He will fill me up. And Jesus said, if I'm afraid, I can go to Him. and He will strengthen me. And it says, Jesus has said, if I am lost, He will come to me. And on the cross, He has proven that He has come to me. One of the the greatest ways that we see the compassionate care of Jesus is not that he just waits on us to come to him, but that he actively seeks us out. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't wait on them to come to him. He went and sought them out. Jesus seeks us and he draws us through his word. He draws us through his spirit. He draws us through his church. He draws us through his providence and he draws us even in this service. There is a he is working to draw us to him. The compassionate care of Jesus is seen and he comes to us and he says, "You come to me." And I always want to hit on this when we talk about ministering and helping and serving. Because we cannot give what we have not received. We cannot give grace if we have not received grace. We cannot give mercy if we have not received mercy. We cannot give Jesus if we have not received Jesus. So I'm calling today to you to come to Jesus and receive everything He has for you. And if you're here and you're crushed by the cares of life, come to Jesus and receive His rest and peace. If you're here today and you have never come to Jesus, then come to Jesus and receive His salvation. Now to come to Jesus and receive His salvation requires intentional response from us. We must repent. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Now, there's many ways the change of life is seen, but the the primary way it's seen goes in what we believe. We repent and we believe the gospel. Prior to, to coming to Jesus, we typically believe in something other than Jesus for our salvation. We believe we're good enough. We believe our family or we believe in any number of things. And because of that, we're we're okay and we're right with God. But repentance changes the core of what we believe. And we go from believing in ourselves or anything else to believing in in the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and saying that is the the only basis of my hope. That is the only basis of my salvation. listen. I love you and I want you to know this clearly. If you are trusting in anything other than Jesus for your standing with God, you are not saved. If you are trusting in anything other than Jesus for your salvation, you are not saved. Only Jesus saves, Not Jesus plus anything. Just Jesus. You must repent. You must change your mind. You must embrace the gospel. You must embrace Jesus. And then the natural response would be to begin to follow Jesus. Jesus is who God's Word says He is. And if He has died on the cross in the awful way God's Word says He did. And He did it for me. And He takes away my sin. And He gives me a new nature. And He fills me with His Holy Spirit. And He gives me a purpose for my life. The natural thing I'm going to do is give my life in service to Him. All of these are a necessary part of what it means Come to Jesus and receive everything He has for us. These are individual responses we must take for ourselves. No one can repent for you. You must repent for yourself. No one can believe for you. You must believe for yourself. And no one can follow Jesus in your place. You must do it for yourself. If you have never repented, if you have never believed, if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, I urge you, come to Jesus today and receive from Him everything He has for you. I stand. I'm going to pray. The altars will be open. If you want to come forward and surrender your life to Christ to be His minister, to serve others in His name, then you come. If you need to come, And receive from Jesus something. Grace, mercy, help, you come. And if you need to come and receive Jesus today, then you come. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for your word. Father, draw us to you today. Jesus said, no man comes to you unless you first draw us to you. So do the work that only you can do. Grant us repentance. Grant us the gift of conviction. Grant us the gift of opening our eyes to see the the glory of Jesus, who is the only hope we have. Help us to surrender our lives to Christ, to do His will in all things, to follow His example of what he has done for us on the cross. We ask in his name. Amen.